The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Who will come 
who will bear the iniquity of my people, who will redeem them, and who will also come to reestablish Zion, to restore God's people, to renew them. We'll see all of these elements of proclamation of judgment, a promise of judgment upon the wayward, a restoration of those that turn to God and, and, and uh, repent and, and turn back to Him. They'll be restored and a promise even of a future blessing that will come upon them. All that we've seen play out through the book of Isaiah is found now in a miniature form here in Isaiah 66. And so it is a recap of the entirety of the proclamation that God made to His people through the prophet Isaiah. Let's read through the chapter this evening. Follow along as I read aloud and and listen for those themes even as God calls His people to repentance, as God uh, promises judgment upon the wicked, as God promises restoration upon the ones who turn, the ones who who, uh, find their brokenness and and turn to the Lord because of it, a promise of a restoration even of, of Zion. Uh, that is yet to come. There's imagery in the middle of the chapter that's dealing with labor and delivery. And the picture, and we'll look at it a little bit more in depth uh, later on this evening, but not too much. Uh, But just as we read it so you understand what it's talking about, God gives an imagery of a woman going through labor to bring about delivery. And he's saying all this judgment is the labor that's coming upon the people of God so that the delivery, the birth may occur, their redemption, their restoration uh, that is yet to come. Let's read in verse 1, Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them, because when I called... No one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. Dealing with a false righteousness there. Those that were even doing the wickedness against the few that remained righteous before God in their persecution. They claimed to have the upper hand and do it for the glory of God. He says, no, no, their shame will come upon them. Verse 6, the sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Uh, never do you find delivery before labor. It always follows the pains, the pains of labor. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? 
Am I going to work through all of this judgment to not bring forth the restoration and redemption that I promised you, says the Lord? Shall I cause, or shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink and deeply uh, drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. All of that's reference to the restoration, the redemption that he's promising for those who go through this judgment and who turn with their heart to the Lord. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, shall you be carried, and be dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem, even though this great misery of Babylon is going to come upon you. Um, In the end, God says, I'm at work for your good, and it will be for your delivery, for your birth. When you see this, verse 14, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to His servants and His indignation to His enemies. Coming a day of retribution, a day of restoration for those that turn to God, and a day of judgment upon the enemies of God. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. That'd be a good verse to preach on a Sunday morning right there. Just that verse alone. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. There will be a day where all will stand accountable. For by fire and by His sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the, uh, the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pole, to Lud, who draw the bow, and to Baal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard of my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. I think there is a reference there even to the church age in which we live, the gospel going to the ends of the world, but there's most definitely going to be a fulfillment in that second return of Jesus where his glory will be known and we're all, where all will stand accountable before him. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of the nations on horses and in chariots and in litters, uh, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. I believe all that will be fulfilled in that millennial kingdom that will immediately follow the return of Christ uh, that precedes the entrance into the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. 
in the end, God wins. <laughs> You've read the book of Revelation. In the end, God wins. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Um, the eternal reminder even of the, <laughs> the place that Jesus even references this verse of hell itself, an eternal place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, where all who do not repent, all who do not turn to the Lord will spend uh, all eternity. There is much in this chapter that we could dwell on tonight. Uh, we, we could rehash <laughs> all of this. I don't have time, nor do you have the capacity to take in all of that tonight. Uh, I want us to consider um, just a simple thought from really the first four verses, dealing with the habitation of God. What We may ask, what is it that God delights in, or where is it that God dwells? What is it that God is ultimately desiring of His people, even as He writes these words, even as He calls out their wayward ways and He promises this restoration? What, what, is, what is it all, what's the trajectory of it all? What is it all heading towards? And what's the greatest fault with the people of God there in that day, especially in the, the first four verses, these accusations that are, are called out against them? How many of you were alive in 1961? Anybody want to raise their hand? Like, anybody remember when the Russians went to space first? The cosmos, uh, what do you call them? Cosmonaut. I about said cosmopolitan. That's not the right word there. Cosmonaut. They're cosmonaut. Yuri Gagarin. Uh, he, he was the first one to get up in space, orbit around, and when he got back, he made a mockery of those who believe in God by proclaiming that he looked out of the little uh, space shuttle craft, whatever it was that he was in. He looked out of the capsule, and he didn't see God anywhere as he, as he was up there in space. Looked out, and God wasn't to be found. I like what W.A. Criswell responded with when he was told the story about, about these words that this cosmonaut spoke. He said, let him step out of the space suit for just one second, and he'll see God quick enough. Uh, a great... Uh, W.A. Criswell, just sharp, those sort of responses all the time. Great truth in that. Great truth. That we look around in this created realm and we think, where is God? Where does He dwell? And many even mock and, and, and try to live a life pretending as if there is no God. And it's good for us to look to this Scripture tonight and think about what God has written and really ask that question, where is it that God dwells? Where is it that He delights to dwell? We know He is in the heavens of heavens. We know He in His glory abides there in a place where we are not. But where is it that He delights to dwell within the here and now? Notice first verses 1 and 2, the beginning of verse 2, that God doesn't need a building. God doesn't need a building. The Jews were so focused in one way and a right way upon the temple, but in a wrong way as it gets to this day and age upon the temple, as if the temple, and only the temple, was the place where God was. It was the place where God did command His sacrifices to be made. It was a place where His glory would be seen to some degree in the Holy of Holies as His Shekinah glory descended upon that place. It was, it was a place where 
the Jews were to go to worship and were to consider the presence of God, yes. But by this day and age, the, the Jews, for the most part, had confined the existence of God to the temple, to the Holy of Holies in particular. And God, I think, addresses that in the beginning of this final chapter of Isaiah 66, where he says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth, the earth is merely my footstool. That God in His glory and His might and His splendor and His existence of His primary habitation and dwelling is not limited and confined to a little room in the temple that was located there in Jerusalem. That He is the God of all creation. That He is a God who abides in the heavens of heavens where His throne is. And that the earth is merely even His footstool. It is the domain of His sovereign rule, but He is not confined to some little house. Where is the house that you will build me? You think there's this great glory in Solomon's temple, and in a way there is this great glory in the building that was built for the worship of God, but God belittles it here, does He not? Where is this house that you will build me? I am not confined to space and time and this little geographical location. Where is the place of my rest for all of those things? He says, my hands have made and all those things exist. And he's inferring by him, by his power. Man may be impressed with the building of a, a great structure, a great beautiful building, such as Solomon's temple. God says, what is that to me? I've, I've brought all that into existence. It's by my power, even, that it exists. The people of God limited the presence of God to the temple of God only. Solomon's temple was a magnificent building. It was designed even by God Himself. He gave the instructions for it, to the, the stone that was cut for it, and the cedars, even from the wood from Lebanon. It was covered with gold and stone. It was an ornate building, most definitely, that, that would move your heart as you entered it to, to, be, to be compelled by the, the presence of God. You know, there is something in architecture. We are, we are beings that are located in space and time. And we are people by being even created in the image of God that when we see something like a sunset or like standing before the Grand Canyon or even when we walk into an old cathedral that is built in the purpose of this. You walk in and there is an awe to it. And rightly, that awe is to point us to the awe and splendor and glory of God. There's nothing wrong with beautiful architecture. I remember taking a mission trip to Costa Rica and in San Ramon, there's a lot of mostly dilapidated buildings all over the place, but there is a Catholic cathedral there. And it is just ornate compared to everything else around it. And you do walk in and there is just a an overwhelming sense of awe. And unfortunately, that place is that place definitely does not have the, the presence of Almighty God in it, even though it can give a, a little old me a little sense of awe. It, there is a, a goodness in the beauty of architecture, but, but that in and of itself, that is not what God has desired. That is not what God is most glorified in. As they had this great temple, this great building, and as many cathedrals even exist today that in their architecture are beautiful and draw our hearts to awe, 
God is not glorified in them because they're absent of God's presence. There is no truth of God being proclaimed there. There are none who tremble at the Word of God found in in those buildings. And so those buildings alone are, are not the dwelling place of God. Those buildings alone don't impress God, even as they might impress you and impress me. God is letting His people know here, you may be impressed by this building, and you may come to this building, this temple, to give me this little bit of of worship, but when you're going and living your lives as you're living them in complete rejection of my word, in complete disobedience to the things that I have commanded of you, God is not glorified in that. God takes no pleasure in that. The people of Judah had delegated God to a place to a building that they went to to offer the sacrifices we'll talk about in a moment. And that was where they confined God to. God was not God over their lives throughout their daily living. God was God to be worshipped on certain festivals and certain occasions, confined there to the building. And God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The house that you built for me, That's not the place of my rest. That's not the place of his satisfaction and of his joy. He was not pleased in the the ornate building of Solomon's temple when they were so far removed from God. We think it's a modern dilemma where we have separated the public life of a believer from the private life of a believer. And in a way, it is a modern phenomenon in our church life of the past 50 years or so because it used to be the the Christian culture was the American culture and how you were on Sunday is how you were on Monday in the workplace and it's almost how everybody even those that weren't Christians was you know were considered the way they ought to behave and the things they ought to do and the way they ought to speak Uh, but but many years ago that sort of changed to where this mentality well Keep your private life private with your religion and, and publicly, you know, you have to put all that to the side, right? You, you can't, you don't want to force your religion upon anybody. That would be, you know, wrong of you to do such a thing. And that was a mentality for a while. And, and then it got so compartmentalized now with most believers that we confine God to Sunday mornings in this church house. And in a way, many have become just like the Israelites of, of Isaiah's day, where, where God has been delegated to a building. We come here to worship God, to pay our respect on Sunday morning, to put a little offering in the offering plate, as a number of country songs say for some reason, and then as if God's going to be pleased by that, and we go and do our own thing throughout our life, Monday through Saturday, and God's been delegated to a place where we put the clothes on and we put the act on, and we come and we worship in a place, and then we leave as if God doesn't care what we're doing Monday through Saturday. The human heart is the human heart. We look at these people and we think, man, how can you be so thick-skulled? How can you not get the warnings that God has given to you? And yet, today, there are still so many who even come service after service and they just, you don't hear it. Even though God is calling, they did not hear. They did not answer. When I spoke, they did not hear. They did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. And I went to I do not delight. Their lives were being lived in, in, in outright rebellion to God. Clear, plain.
plain sin that they never dealt with before God, and they thought by coming to a place, God would be pleased, because that's where God dwells. Not much different than our day and our age. God is very soon in their day and age going to bring that building down to rubble. And if you can imagine how that wrecked so many in Jerusalem, the place that had stood for over 400 years as the, the shining pinnacle of the God of Israel, the Temple of Solomon, the place where their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers had gone to worship and to sacrifice is going to be brought down to rubble for the people of God as they are defeated and as they are led as slaves back to Babylon. Why is God doing that? Because He is giving a very hard lesson to His people. I don't dwell just in this temple. I am not what you, what you have put me in, this little box delegated to be worshipped just in this place and in this building. God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Well, what is this house that you've built for me? You, uh, you put it up and elevate it as this thing of great glory. But God says when you come to this place with such sin and wickedness in, in your life, He's not glorified in it. He's going to lay it flat and waste to make His point clear. I'm not confined by this building. This building is not meant for me and my glory as much as it is for you to come to see me in my glory. You cannot confine God to a building and pretend as if we then can go live and do whatever we want, however we want. And just because we come to a place on a Sunday morning or even the faithful on the Wednesday night that God is pleased God doesn't need a building. Notice, secondly, we'll skip to verses 3 and 4. God doesn't even need a sacrifice. It's interesting, as we have read through Isaiah and we read the other prophets, even that like we'll get to in Micah, the, the people didn't just stop the sacrificial system. They continued on in their ritualistic sacrificial system that God had commanded of them. But they did so just as they'd come to a place to worship God and then leave and not worship. They would offer these sacrifices with a heart that was so far from God because of the wickedness of their life that God makes clear, even as He makes a, a mockery in a way of their sacrifices here, that, that it was not pleasing to the Lord. He says, Who is he who kills a bull as if he slays a man? And so the imagery here is dealing with the right sacrifice that they should offer, and yet the means by which they're doing it, the heart behind the sacrifice, was done just as much with the wickedness of what would be required as killing a person as they would offer the sacrifice before the Lord. There was no reverence. There, there was no obedience. There was no contrition in it. There was no right acknowledgement of what it represented as the even substitutionary atonement for their iniquity, for their sin. They, they made it into an act that, that the heart behind it was even as one who is killing a person, committing murder. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, an unclean animal, 
and it may even be offered in a, a pagan sacrificial sort of system. He, he's saying you're just as bad, even though you're doing the right thing because of your heart behind it. You're just as bad as the ones who are involved in this gross idolatry. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. He says, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. But what they do, here's the definition of wickedness. They did evil before my eyes, before the eyes of God. God is the lawgiver. God is the one who is holy and just and righteous. And in the eyes of God, they had departed from his ways. They had ignored his laws and commands. And they were living in outright rebellion before the Lord. Their sacrifices, therefore, meant diddly. Worse than meaning diddly. Their sacrifices were an offense before a holy God because their hearts were so wrong in the offering of them. They chose that in which I do not delight, even though God delighted in the sacrificing of a bull and of a lamb and of a grain offering and of the incense offering. Those were rightly commanded of God. Their lives were filled with such wickedness and their hearts so far from the Lord, even as they went about these now ritualistic acts, that God says, I'm going to bring your delusions upon you and your fears upon them. Your worst fears are going to come true. And we know what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come in. And many will be killed. And many will be led back captive. And Jerusalem laid waste. The application to us is obvious. God is not glorified with the sacrifices of our worship when our lives are being lived in disobedience before Him. That just because, I've used this picture, illustration before, but of a, a Christian concert, and as a teenager you've been going with a whole bunch of kids and, and knowing who they, you know, knowing not, not who they were, but knowing what they were doing. Just knowing the lives that they were living, the things that they were involved in. And yet they could have this great emotional experience, the hands raised and singing, you know, all of these songs that, that you know, speak of surrendering to the Lord and speak of, you know, the glory of God and His grace and His love, His mercy, and you just look at that and you, you kind of wonder, like, what does God think of that? What does God think of a hand lifted high when a heart is filled with sin and iniquity? When a heart is lived in rebellion against Him, no real trembling at His Word, no real contrition or humility before God Almighty. But it's just a spectacle of really self-righteousness God pleased, even though the even though the external act would look good, would look pleasing to God. Was God pleased by that? No, God's not fooled. God sees the heart. God's not pleased with our empty worship. God is not pleased with our sacrifices that we make and uh, put a little change in the offering plate as you go and do your own thing and live your own life as if God's now going to bless you in the wicked pursuits of your heart. Uh, God, God is not glorified in that. His people in that day thought all we needed to do was you know, have this external form of following the Lord through these sacrifices. And God says, no, you're just as bad as the murderer, as the one offering of dog's 
broken, breaking his neck, the swine's blood, the one blessing, an idol. Your ways are wicked, wickedness before me. I think of King Saul, and Saul just not, not understanding this, even in his disobedience of God's command to kill King Agag and not take any of the riches and, and you know, totally committed that city to annihilation and yet Samuel or Saul rather saw it and, and decided, you know what, what if I take this king back and sort of make a puppet of him and take the riches back too? We can make use of these even these animals are, you know, great, strong animals. We can use them in the sacrifice to give to the Lord in the celebration of this great victory. And of course Samuel confronts him, first Samuel fifteen, twenty two Twenty-three has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. For behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of rich witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. God is not glorified with their sacrifices of worship when our lives are being lived in disobedience before Him. If you think you can embrace, the, unfortunately, the Catholic way of do what you want and come have a time of confession and God forgives and you go back and do what you want and continue in it, and as long as you get your confession time in, no, you're, you're a fool. And God is not pleased with that sort of empty confession. It's a confession that's no different than the idolaters. It's, it's not a true heart. God does not need a building. God does not need a sacrifice. What is it that God desires? What is it that He delights in then and that He still delights in now? Notice verse 2 and the latter portion to be, God desires your heart. The holy habitation of God who is in the heavens. He's not glorified by an ornate building. He's not glorified and doesn't delight in the sacrificial ritualistic elements of worship, whether that's then and there or here and now. What is it that God gets glory in? Where is it that God will dwell, where He will look? Where is it that He delights? He delights in the heart of one who turns to Him in humble brokenness and contrition. But on this one, I will look. This is the one. This is where I will dwell. This is where I receive glory. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This isn't new to the day of Isaiah, it is throughout the Scripture repeated, and it is even repeated by the Lord Jesus Christ that we looked at not long ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so many people get wrongly twisted in, in Bible doctrine and think, well, back then they were saved by their works. Back then they were saved by the keeping of the law. Back then they were saved because of the sacrificial system. And they, they forget grace. They forget repentance and belief. The gospel has been more 
fully explained, of course, and revealed, rather, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were saved then by grace through faith, just as we are now by grace through faith. It required a humble and a contrite heart being being brought to brokenness and recognition of your sinfulness and turning to the Lord to just seek His grace and His mercy. And they didn't understand all that was going to come in that day and age, that Jesus would die upon a cross for their sins, but they knew that God had had required their repentance and they knew God had given a, a, a system of sacrifice that if they rightly in right faith went and offered these sacrifices, it covered their sin for that season. They responded to the revelation God had given, to the promises God had revealed at the time, by faith, believing it is truth, having fear of the Word of God, trembling at His Word, meaning you receive it as God's Word, as the King of all kings and Lord of lords, as the God of all the universe, and you take God at His Word. And when you do that, and you come to get a glimpse of Him and His glory and His splendor and His might, it leaves you with a poor and contrite spirit. Contrite, humble, and broken, and penitent is what that word really points to. Penitent. A word that's foreign, sadly, even to Christianity today. But penitent just simply means coming under an acknowledgement of the weight of your sin, of your sinfulness. That you realize, I'm an unworthy rebel before God. I deserve His damnation. I deserve His wrath. And when the sinner comes to that place of broken humility before God, and they turn to God and simply cast themselves at at God's mercy, what they find is God's mercy. They find that He is a God who delights in being merciful, a God who delights in forgiving, a God who delights in redeeming and in restoring. Just as it is now, so it was then. But on this one, I will look, not on the one who builds for me an ornate building, not on the one who has all of these sacrifices, but, but the one whose heart is broken and contrite. Poverty of spirit and contrition of spirit before me and who trembles at my word. If you take notes, write these references down. These are just a few other references that point to this same truth. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What does this God say? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 18. For thus says the high and... Oh, I repeated the wrong one there in my copying and pasting over. We'll have to look it up. Psalm chapter 34. Look at your Bibles there. Psalm chapter 34 and in verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit, a spirit of contrition, of penance before the Lord. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David writes, and he says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are what? Are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. 
God says what I delight in and where I will dwell and where I will bring healing and restoration and redemption is not the arrogant, wayward lives of those doing whatever they want, however they want, and coming and building me a great building and offering me all the required sacrifices. No, God delights in the one who comes in humility and in contrition, in brokenness and in repentance before Him, casting themselves at His mercy, and then when they offer the sacrifice or then when they build the building, they know God is not confined to those things. They know they, they tremble at every word of God. They revere God for who He is as the God of all creation, the God who inhabits the heavens and whose footstool is the earth. And that doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. It doesn't just happen on Wednesday night. Every moment they awake, every morning, they acknowledge the sovereign God who's redeemed them and saved them. And every night before they go to bed, they say a prayer thanking God for the day that He has led them through and asking His blessing upon the day that is to come tomorrow. It's not a Sunday morning sort of worship. It's not an empty place they come to. It's not a wayward heart and a sacrifice or religious ritual that they walk through. No, all of those things get the right meaning and the right right pleasing of God because right glory that God receives in them because their heart's right before God. Those things aren't empty and idle in and of themselves a bad thing. They're bad because of the waywardness of a heart involved in them. When the heart is right, those become right. God does not delight in the building. He does not delight in the sacrifice. God delights in the heart. 1 Samuel 16 and 7, the Lord said to Samuel regarding David, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him, dealing with those brothers of David. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on what? The heart. So as we close tonight, it is a call of examination. How is your heart before the Lord? I'm not asking how your sacrifices are. I'm not asking how beautiful is this place you come to. I'm asking how is your heart? Are you rightly living in humble contrition before God and trembling at His Word, meaning revering His Word, respecting His commands, which leads to a heart that seeks to follow Him and obey Him as He is God of all the universe, as He is God of Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we ask that You would Search our hearts, examine us, find within us any anything that is wayward, anything that ought not to be there, and that you would convict us of it. Lord, we are so easily distracted, we are so easily tempted and led astray. May tonight, uh, just even in this invitation, be a time of examination wherein the reflection of your word through your spirit, you would just convict us of sin and draw us afresh and anew to a, a broken and a contrite spirit before you. Lord, what a greater revelation we have this side of the cross to know uh, what You do to save us from our sin, that You would give Christ to die upon the cross to forgive us, to redeem us, to restore us. Lord, forgive us of our sins. 
the work I pray in this moment I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.